Welcome to the Book Club Interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host, where we read a book a week and then interview the authors on topics such as business, real estate, and life to provide new insight and shed some light on the topic at hand. Today's guest is Dave Van Horn. Dave Van Horn is president at PPR, The Note Company, an operating entity that manages several funds that buy, sell, and hold residential mortgages, both performing and delinquent. Dave has been in the real estate business for over 25 years, starting out as a realtor and contractor and moving on to everything from fix and flips to raising private money. PPR has been in the mortgage advisory and fund management business since 2007. It acts as an advisor to several investment funds that acquire distressed residential debt nationwide. PPR's funds manage first and second mortgages, as well as REO properties. Dave's goal is to bring investors unique opportunities to build wealth and create passive income through investing in real estate notes. Most recently, Dave wrote the book on real estate note investing, teaching others how to use mortgage notes to passively and massively increase your income. So today's learning objectives are to understand the basics of note investing, how to build wealth like a bank, buying your first property purposefully, power of leveraging connections, the natural progression of capital, best investing strategies, and debt versus equity. So Dave, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? <laughs> wow, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes. <sorry. laughs> yeah. No, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. Just excited to have you and, um, you know, really, you know, I feel blessed that you know, I reached out to you and you're more than happy to kind of help me out with a couple of my passions and uh, hopefully we can provide some value to listeners today, so... No, I love the whole book interview thing. I read a lot of books, and uh, it's one of my daily morning rituals. So it's good. Can relate. Yeah. Yep. All right. So let's start with uh, the introduction notes and how they work. Well, um, a lot of times, what I, you know, a lot of times when I'm speaking somewhere, or I'm talking to a group, I kind of introduce the idea of either asking the audience what their first note was, or I'll ask the audience who in here is in the note business. And at first, no one really raises their hand. And then a lot of times I'll start by asking questions of, well, do you know any hard money lenders? Or do you, um, how many people in here have a credit card? Or how many people have a student loan? Or how many people have an auto loan or a mortgage? And what they quickly realize is most of us are all in the note business. Mm -hmm. We just never thought about it. And, uh, you know, I was actually talking to my son about this because we were we write a lot of articles and I was like, we should do an article or something on about how people go through life and financing activities just happen to them. And then there's a select group of people who actually master finance or master financing and use it as a tool, whereas everybody else kind of lets it happen to them. They just go through life uh, ignoring it. Meanwhile. Yeah. Banks are, you know, utilize, they're making money off you every which way and financing impacts your cost of insurance. It impacts all these things in your daily life that everybody just ignores. They ignore the impact of their credit score. They ignore, they just go through life and financing happens to them or at them as -hmm. opposed to harnessing it and actually learning it and using it as a tool, you know. Yeah, no, definitely. So let's talk about that strategy, uh, building wealth by being like the bank. What does that look like? Well, I think a, a lot of us are, you know, it's a huge marketing machine when you think about banking. And for me, you know, you could tell from the stories in the book where, you know, I was in college and I took money in banking and I, I never thought of the impact it would have on me. It's kind of, mm-hmm. it's probably not a great analogy, but you'll see like Steve Jobs took calligraphy, right? And all of a sudden yeah. it's in Apple products, right? Well, it's kind of the same for me, right? Here I am in this business where I'm uh, really disruptive to the banking business and the, uh, even the financial advisory business. You know, we're trying to create a platform where people can invest 24 hours a day in a Wall Street product with no middlemen on your cell phone, right? Like mm-hmm. that was unheard of a few years back, right? You couldn't, you know, you would have to go to your advisor and he would recommend, you know, that kind of thing. And, Look how disruptive we're being right now. So, you know, the fact that banks have been marketing to the public to park your money, be safe when they're moving money constantly. They're not parking any of their money. In fact, they're leveraging their money and they're moving their money and they're telling you to park their money with them. And if you park your money with us, I'll give you a free pen or a free, (laughs) you know, notebook if you open a checking account. 
one of the biggest uh, jokes in banking is that there's a free checking account. It's really not free. It's it, you're giving up a huge opportunity cost of your capital to the bank that they're utilizing. In fact, they're re-leveraging it. So, uh, awesome. so I'm introducing the idea of, hey, why not start to think like the bank, be like the mm -hmm. bank, change your mindset, you know, alter some of your activities. And you'll, you know, you could quickly incorporate a lot of the strategies to, you know, eliminate and pay down debt quicker, ways to um, just be like the bank and become the lender sometimes. Uh, and you can actually do the same thing and make a lot of money that way. And if you really think about PPR, you know, my goal is to be a billion dollars under management in less than the next 10 years. And, you know, I'm doing this with OPM, other people's capital. Um, it's really, you know, I wish I had a billion dollars, but I don't. <laughs> yep. And uh, the fact that I can put that all together and make that happen is, is pretty powerful, right? Being the bank, thinking like the bank. Definitely. Yeah. No, I feel like that's the, the ultimate goal in investing. It's kind of, you know, borrow other people's money now. And then hopefully one day as an investor, you, you do reach that, reach that point where, hey, you know, I'm putting my money to work as opposed to, you know, putting other people's money to work. So... Uh, was that kind of hard, you know, first getting out there it, or there's a point during your career where you started using your own capital to kind of grow, you know, on its on itself by lending it out? Well, I, I mean, I think even in the book, I try to give this general overview of just banking in general, just lending in general, just finance in general, just notes in general. The note world's a vast world. It's a trillion dollar industry and people yeah. don't even know it's happening. Right. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I think in the beginning, even for myself, you know, I'm this young guy out of college. I'm just trying to figure it all out, trying to figure out life. Where am I going? What am I doing? Who am mm -hmm. I? Where do I want to be? You know how you're trying to find yourself and all that good stuff. Yep. Uh, but but then I, you know, over time, I think the first real uh, advantage of thinking about leverage and thinking about, you know, arbitrage was when I... Um, took a real estate investment class to, towards my broker's license. I was I was just a regular realtor, so to speak, and I was working in construction in the day and becoming a realtor at night, and I was taking classes, and the one class the teacher was talking about utilizing credit cards to purchase houses, and that never had occurred to me. And at the time, uh, cash advance checks were relatively new, and there was very almost no fees at all. Today, that's different. And I don't know that I would use this technique today. In fact, I would just use private money or hard money. But yeah. the uh, at that time, it was like, oh my gosh, I can write myself a credit card check and deposit it in my account. <laughs> I never thought of that, right? And I never thought about using so, you know, the bank's money to go buy a property. Because I knew how to find deals through the MLS and I knew how to renovate deals because I was in construction. So I, the missing piece for me was the capital. I had no capital. Mm -hmm. I was just this, you know, blue collar kid, uh, yep. you know, that just didn't have a lot of resources. And, and then that was the missing link. And then, you know, I probably got my first 10 or 12 houses that way where I'd buy it with a, buy a house with credit cards, fix it up with credit cards, move a tenant in, refinance, pay the credit cards off. And then I accumulated, you know, quite a bit of property. Eventually I had 40 places. And, um, and then next thing you know, uh, property values jumped up. Uh, very little pay down it was mostly an increase, you know, appreciation thing that happened along the way by, I don't want to say by accident. I guess you make your, you make your luck some ways, but mm -hmm. you know, it appreciated. Next thing you know, I have a couple million in equity and you know, it's like, where'd this come from? Yeah. yeah. And, and I started using lines of credit and uh, arbitrage again, I'm borrowing money at three and 4% and lending it out at 15 and 18 with points. Okay. Well, yep. that's huge difference of arbitrage. You know, if you get $2 million in uh, equity and you can tap even 80% of it, that's 1.6 million, and you can make a 10% spread between what you're, if you're borrowing at four and you're lending at 14, that's a 10% spread, you're making 160,000 a year. Well, that was more than most of the salaries I had had up until that point. You know, here I can make 160,000 a year safely and passively by lending to other contractors that were friends to do their rehab projects. And if you're only lending 65% loan to value, it's a very safe deal. Plus I could renovate property if I took it back. 
So yeah. it was it, it was in my wheelhouse. Now, not everybody has my advantages that I had, you know, being a realtor and being a contractor. It, you know, not everybody's in that position. But it's really, you know, you could still focus on what you're good at and hire yeah. the people that you're not good at. You know, I'm not good at everything. There's a lot of things I'm, I'm terrible at. So, Yeah. Awesome. I still think that's amazing. You bought your first house with a credit card. <laughs> I just hear that and it's, it's just awesome. But you know, that's, I, I love your creativity. You know, you said you had everything else besides the capital. So you went out and you know, you did what you did to, to make it happen. Um, well, I was a loner too. At that time I didn't really network very well and I didn't know okay. much about networking at that stage. I was still young You know, I was probably in my upper twenties and yeah. I, I was a, coming from the real estate world and yeah i networked with other realtors but i didn't really network with investors like real estate investors and i was probably in my early 40s before i did so i had probably already owned you know 10 or 15 houses by the time i started joining real estate investor groups uh, almost like meetups today whether it was a ria group or that type of thing and then i I really started to click for me so it's back to what i you know, tell people starting out today, if you want to get good at anything, um, you want to get educated in the space, you want to network with people doing it. And if you can find a mentor or coach to accelerate it, um, you know, more power to you. And it could be any field, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be just real estate. It's almost anything like that. And I was missing a couple of those pieces for a while, you know. Okay. Yeah. And you put great emphasis on the power of leveraging those connections and knowledge in the book. So how do those attending those meetings and, you know, sharing, discussing ideas and workshops, you know, shape your career as you went over the years? Well, I found that career. So I went to the first uh, RIA group meeting and I was looking for financing and I found it before I even got inside. There were vendor tables out front and it was actually a, um, it was a lender out of Pittsburgh who was turning me on to all this creative financing strategies of, you know, basically an investor friendly lender. Mm-hmm. Well, I had never met one of those. You know, I didn't know they even existed. I, you know, and here I am a realtor. Right. I'm in my yeah. own little bubble. And I never realized, you know, this guy had me re-leveraging all kinds. You know, he was finding me capital everywhere. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is unbelievable. And then even when I joined the group. Uh, Not only am I hanging out with other people that are in the same issues that I have, um, but the other piece was I was introduced to notes and and they would have like a speaker come in and and then on a Saturday workshop. And the very first person I saw on a Saturday workshop was Jimmy Napier, who wrote the book Invest in Debt. And of course, nothing resonated for a long time. I was in renovation mode and accumulation of property mode and didn't really think about the note space for a long time, but I started seeing more and more people talking about notes, whether it was Donna Bauer and Pete Fortunato and all mm-hmm. these different, you know, Jack Millers. And I would just sit in these seminars, um, not necessarily buying courses or anything, just just absorbing. And um, over time, uh, I started lending, pro- borrowing private money to do my projects. And then I said, well, this is really cool. I can lend money to do this as well. So not only was I a borrower, I became a lender. And at one point I was, you know, an agent at a Remax and I was doing property management and I owned a title company and doing all kinds of activity through my real estate business. Um, I talk about in the book, multiple streams of income. You know, I yep. saw, saw Robert Allen speak and read his book. I was like, well, how can I incorporate more channels of what I do every day. Cause like we do activities every day where all these people are making money off us and we never think about, well, that could be me making that extra company or that extra vertical. And a lot of times we leave money on the table. So I started doing some of that. And then, um, at one point I'm doing property management and I'm managing over a hundred units for friends. And I, I was mostly selling to real estate investors at the time, but then I was also doing lending and the lending was just so easy. And the lend compared to my regular activity. And as a realtor, I started to become like a full-time inspector, inspecting HUD houses and home inspections and rental properties. And and then I also was in court. I would go to court at least once or twice a month. And then it became more and more frequent as the portfolio grew that I was managing. So I'm like, I'm in court all the time. I'm inspecting property all the time. <laughs> and I'm really not getting paid that well for that. you know. And I'm like, yeah. is that the best use of my time? Or over here, I could just be a lender, 
and I don't have any of that nonsense most of the time. I mean, sure, you could take a property back, but it's rare. I mean, mm-hmm. so in it, when I started looking at simplicity, you know, as I got older and hopefully wiser, I started to gravitate towards real estate investment vehicles that were less, um, you know, tenant intensive or maintenance yeah. intensive, almost like I'm a not tired landlord, but more like a, a smart, lazy landlord kind of thing yeah. where, hey, if I have an office building, my tenant's only there from nine to five. Oh, if I have a, a storage center, I'm really not evicting families in the middle of winter, right? It's a storage center. Or if I have you know, a mobile home park, I'm really just leasing land and there's very low turnover and there's you know a lot of tax advantages. So it's like, how do I move into a different area of investing that is less maintenance intensive or less management intensive, that type of thing. So I was starting to work smarter instead of harder a little bit. And, uh, but it kept bringing me back to the note piece. Um, then, you know, once I get into the institutional notes, then it really took off because, uh, and that pretty much happened by accident, you know? Yeah. Well, I love that reflection process and that growth over the years. You know, you started asking yourself those important questions of, you know, what is the highest and best use of my time? And, you know, in the beginning when I was, you know, back by my first property, I was like, I'll do it. I'll buy it, you know, no matter what. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, it's probably not worth managing that type of tenant. And, but you know, you're growing as an investor and you, you know, learning from, you know, your experiences. And I, I love your natural progression of capital from, you know, credit cards, line of credit, HELOC, hard money to private money. So what's your favorite source of capital to use and, and why? Well, today we, all the capital we use primarily is uh, private equity. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of private equity, not that I won't use institutional capital. In fact, I have someone right now that is coming at me with institutional capital for $40 million, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's an attractive rate, but there's all these strings attached, you know, and and the one thing that I love about having a grassroots organic group of capital that is built on trust and relationship and track record, it's priceless because if the institutional capital decides to go away or pull their plug or whatever, I'm not left hanging. And I, mm-hmm. I think... I like the idea of having multiple sources of capital and and modeling myself off a blended rate as opposed to, oh, I want to get all institutional capital uh, or, you know, or the opposite where I want to use all private capital that might be a little more expensive or. Yeah. So so I think having multiple sources of capital is wise, just like having multiple contractors is wise. You know, I was from the school because I was a contractor and worked 22 years in construction, I knew it was smart to have four plumbers instead of one, you know, four electricians instead of one, you know, a couple drywall guys, a couple tile guys, because I know what trades are rare and hard to get, like a stonemason is impossible to get, right? So it's like, you got to know that or you're you're really going to be left hanging in your project, right? So it's the same idea in all aspects. You want to have know, multiple sources of uh, capital, I think. And for me, the private equity has been phenomenal. And, and we can almost raise unlimited capital today. Now, the key is, can you deploy it? And can you execute on it? So it's every business has the same three, I call it the pillars. And one of them's always uh, highlighted at any given point in time. So it's always uh, scalability it's, and it's sources of capital and sources of product, no matter what your business is. And then at some point, your business could shut down, right? So if I said to you, how many notes could you handle if the notes were free? Well, at some point, you're, it's a scalability question, right? You're, your business would shut down at some point. How many rehabs mm-hmm. could you do a month? Is it 5, 10? Is it 25? Is it 50? At some point, you're shutting down, you know? So you, yeah. you have to manage your capital and manage your deployment and manage your execution all at the same time. Yeah. No, that's that's really smart. So um, let's talk about that. You know, when financing dries up, you know, I think you touched on it in, in, perfectly in the book. You had three parts. Um, you know, when the unsecured notes to purchase a property dried up, and then you went to part two. You know, using secured notes, HELOCs, and then part three when it dries up, using private money and hard money. So um, can you talk about the pitfalls of you know using unsecured capital, and you know some of the pitfalls of using HELOCs. <laughs> well, right. It, you know, there's 
there's advantages and disadvantages to everything. You just want to be aware of them and, you know, have the proper reserves or have the property proper strategy when you're utilizing it. Right. I remember, you know, just like credit cards, for example, you know, I, I'll never forget telling my wife, hey, I'm going to buy a house with credit cards. And she's like, <laughs> are you freaking crazy? And she's and, still with you, right? <laughs> she's still with me, actually. Okay. And she's like, that's not going to affect my credit card for the mall, is it? And I'm like, no, we can still. That's a different credit card. Don't worry about that. But when you really think about it, what was the risk? If I bought a house with a credit card and something went awry, what could they do? They could take my credit card. Okay. They really would have to struggle to get to the house even. Yeah. Now, once I refinanced it, and ha and usually I wouldn't refinance it until it's fully renovated with a tenant and a nice signed one-year lease in hand, right? So now I have it up and running, and what's the risk on the bank? They're lending me you know, 65% usually of the after-repaired value. Well, that's a lot of equity in that property, and if I'm still cash flowing a couple hundred a month, pretty safe deal for the bank, pretty safe deal for me. Credit cards were paid back. What do you think the credit card companies did? They upped my limits. It, at one point, I had four hundred grand in credit cards, which back you know years ago was a lot of money to for me. Now, if you're in New York City, four hundred grand's a joker today, probably. <laughs> but but back then, it was a lot of money, and I could do a lot with four hundred grand. I could almost go buy anything I wanted. So when it came to HELOCs, I think there's different risks, right? Especially if it's a HELOC on your primary residence versus your rental property, for example. And I made the mistake, well, I, I call it a mistake. It's really not that big of a mistake, but I would use the home equity line of credit to go do other real estate projects at first. And I was like, well, it's a cheap interest rate. You know, I could borrow this money at three and 4%. And you know, I'm a contractor, but what do you think happened when I did that? I would go buy a house over here, you know, with 3% money or 4% money. And then I got busy in my day job over here, you know, being a contractor or being a realtor. And when do you think I showed up for my house? Well, it's cheap money. I'll get there whenever I feel like it. So that's one issue. Uh, but the real issue was what happened to my plumber. And I tell the story in the book. Um, you know, I have a really good friend, a high school buddy. You know, he was a, my plumber for years. And uh, he had a nice home, million dollar house, wife and two kids. And he ends up, um, he bought a property to renovate with his line of credit from his primary, and he took a heart attack. And he was out of work nine months. Well, he almost lost the house he lived in over this little rental rehab project, hmm. all to save interest rate, all to save a little bit of money on interest. And think about it, you're only borrowing the money for six months or whatever to renovate yeah. the house. It, it's very nominal. If my plumber buddy had used private or hard money, he could have just returned the deed over to the person and said, I'm sick. I can't handle this project. You know, take back the property. And it probably wouldn't even have impacted his credit because most private money doesn't even report to credit. And he would have never jeopardized his primary residence. So that taught me a valuable lesson that it's not about the interest rate. It's about the safety as well. It's about risk. And nobody weighs the risk. They're just so focused on interest rate. They're ignoring the risk. And I was guilty of that myself. So the mm. lesson there was it actually came out to be a great lesson because I was like, well, this makes a perfect sense. If I go to do my own rehab project, I'm going to use private money and pay a little higher rate. And you know what? The little higher rate, it's short term money. It's not that big a deal. And it's going to force me to get over there and get the project done. Meanwhile, my money because I'm borrowing on a home equity line of credit, I'm going to either use short-term investments or investments that are liquid so that I don't run into any risk like my uh, plumber buddy did. So what happened there is I started using my money for short-term private money deals for rehabbers or I would buy notes. And the reason I would invest in notes is because I can sell a note in about 15 minutes. I can't sell a property in 15 minutes. So if there's any interest rate fluctuation in my line of credit, I can always sell a note, right? Or yeah. all, all my money is not tied up in one project. You know, say I have $100,000, so I might go buy four notes or five notes with that as opposed to one rehab deal that I'm working on. So that I'm stuck in, you know? Now, yeah. if, I got hurt, if I got hurt or anything, it's a lot different selling a note or just, you know, I, I probably wouldn't even have to sell the note, but they're very liquid, right? But you can also do twice as many deals now. Now I'm doing the rehab project, and I'm investing in notes. So I'm making arbitrage money over here, and I'm also making rehab money over there. It's well worth the extra 
uh, little small incremental cost of interest that I'm deducting for the rehab project to do twice as many deals and really build wealth. So a blessing came out of that, you know? Yeah, definitely. I I know that was the case when I was first starting out. My first, you know, REO purchase, I had to use a HELOC on my primary because no one saw that track record or, you know, didn't really believe in the final product. But, you know, I leveraged it. I was like, you know what, just like you in the first, it's like, you know, whatever that costs it, whatever, I see it, you know, I, you know, I had that construction background, just like you doing the rehabs myself. And, you know, I found the risk, you know, worth taking. But now, my fiance and myself, we you know share a primary residence, and it's like we have some capital there, and I'm like, uh, you know, asking myself that same question. So I think your wisdom, you know, not only, you know, helps because I'm always asking that, you know, especially when I talk to people like yourself. It's like, okay, what's your experience and what's your wisdom, you know, at my point, and you know, trying to gain that reflection process. It's really simple. Borrow the money from your buddy's HELOC, and he can borrow the money from your Smart. HELOC. And now no one's at, you just eliminated the risk almost, you know? Okay. So, and, yeah. and if you had, you know, say you had children now, so mm-hmm. it's a bigger risk now cause you're, you know, it's your primary residence, especially now on a yeah. rental property, it's a little bit different, but I still even play that same risk card the same way. I Definitely. use my lines of credit for notes and lending and I use other people's money for my rehab projects. I'm doing twice as many deals and happier for it. And I think I have a lot less risk. Yeah. Awesome. Um, now, I love your rules for private financing. So I, I broke it out three steps. So find your rhythm, prove yourself, and build trust. So can you talk about you know finding your rhythm? What does that look like? In, in what context are you talking about? You mean as far as um, lending or rehabbing or? Yeah, kind of. You know, your niche for for real estate invest, investing is that that you know your rhythm is you you're buy and hold or you're fix and flip. Oh, or, finding what you're good at and what you like yeah. and what what works for you at a given time. Well, some of that'll change over time, mm-hmm. right? Like some of my strategy. Like I, most of my life, I was in accumulation mode, so my rhythm was to acquire buy and hold properties, and I looked at it as a surefire way to, you know, build wealth and. Here's the way I look at it. If you and I had the same exact job and the same pay and you didn't invest any money at all in real estate, you just went to work and worked in your day job, bought your primary residence. By retirement, you paid it off and you're that's it, right? But you're really not cash flowing from that. Me, on the other hand, I went out and accumulated buy and hold property over a long period of time. We both made the same money. The only difference is the money you paid in taxes I was able to hold on to through my properties, through depreciation. So the only difference is I built a portfolio of properties by retirement and you didn't. And I built the portfolio in, in reality with tax saving dollars that over those years. That's really what's happening out there. Because I was an accounting major in college, right? I, I, I didn't become an accountant, but that's the one lesson I learned is the people that don't invest in real estate, that's what they're missing. They're missing that all their tax dollars that they don't really notice that come out of their check. They have no way of investing that or anything. But the people that buy rental properties, really what they're doing is diverting their tax dollars into that portfolio. And their tax dollars are buying the portfolio for their estate. That's really what's happening. Yeah. No, it's extremely wise. I, I love Jim Rome and he had he had a question. It's like, you know, you know, how can you afford not to invest at some point? I know I butchered it a little bit, but it's, you know, I always ask myself, it's, what does it look like if I don't invest? Because people always talk about the risks as a landlord and what if you get a bad tenant, but, you know, what, what's the opposite side of the spectrum? So. It's the other 95% of the people. I mean, yeah. it's, I, I look at the tax component as there's four main areas that really contributed to my wealth building. One of them was tax savings, right? And mm-hmm. Just from a general sense, there's really three areas that we're rewarded for, and it's for um, providing housing, providing jobs, or charity. So if you can incorporate that into your activity, you know, we're all on this planet for a certain period of time. You know, I'll give you an example. Even in your real estate, like I have a buddy that his nonprofit has 39 apartments to disabled veterans, and he makes $30,000 a month doing it. Well, that's kind of incorporating it all into into that model. He's taking advantage of the tax structure. Most people don't do that. They just go. It's just like the financing thing I was talking about earlier. They do the same thing with taxes. They just ignore them. 
they just, pa- oh, it's out of my check. I ignore it. They take care of it. It's too complicated. I don't want to learn it. I'd rather watch ping pong on TV or something. <laughs> so th- that's kind of what happens. But the tax component, every dollar you save in taxes is another dollar to invest. Uh, and then when you don't have a lot of dollars, like I didn't back in the day, it was critical that every dollar I saved in taxes. And there were a couple of pieces that did that. One of one of the second of the four was to invest intentionally. And that included your primary residence. So that I looked, I treated property I owned in my own name or my primary residence as one bucket of one investing bucket. And for most people, they buy a house, they sell a house, they buy a house, they sell a house. And then by age 45 to 55, if they're doing well, their accountant's saying, oh, you need to go buy a vacation home or a duplex. But the terms of the financing are are much less desirable when they had already owned one or two or three properties along the way, that if they invested intentionally in their primary residence early on, like say they bought the first townhouse where the payment was just a little bit under rent or something, or they bought a condo or a duplex, so much smarter. And then to keep that property, you know, I bought my first property in 79, which was a duplex. I still own that thing. That thing cash, that thing's a cash cow. Um, so I think people lose sight of that. I literally have one property today that was a former primary residence that I run a business through today. I, I can live off that one thing and all my other income and investments is just there to invest with. I literally live off one project. So I think people lose sight of that, uh, that potential. And I don't, and I think they throw away the settlement cost money. They don't look at that. They just look at monthly payment. It's almost like a car dealer where it's like, what do you want your month car payment to be? You know, you're not looking about your down payment and, and yeah. how much it's depreciated or it's like, it's, oh no, don't pay attention to that. Just look at your monthly payment. Right. Yeah. So it, it's the same idea with houses and people forget about, I, you know, I spent 10, 20, 30 grand in closing that went out the window the day I bought that property. And when you move on to the next house, you threw all that away. Whereas if you kept it, now not only did you keep your settlement money invested, you actually grabbed a bunch of write-offs. So now you have mortgage interest from two properties or three properties and depreciation and all the other things that go along with it. Plus, if you live there five years or something in your first property, well, that's five years towards paying off that 30-year mortgage or whatever that was, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love your buying purposely on that first one. And you gave the, you know, the best note you can get is that FHA, you know, owner occupied one to four, two to four unit. And that's, that's the best strategy, I think, you know, starting out. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you had this, this common stra- uh, strategy in the book that you said uh, you learned from one of your mentors and you wish that, you know, someone broke it down for you sooner. And uh, here's the quote. So once you positively cash flow after you have all your initial capital back, or if you have no capital in the deal to begin with, you have an infinite rate of return. So then you go into the six steps. Finding the project, raising the private equity, putting an expert team together, obtaining 70 to 80% commercial loan, purchase, improve, then refi, then repeat. So is this the formula you still use today when you're looking at projects? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to. I, really, I look at what are my exits. For a while after the crash, too, one of the exits went away which was refinance and rent. It was much harder to do that after the crash. And it was another reason I drifted into the note space because the financing had gone away. So think about the typical real estate investor before 2008. He could buy a project, renovate it, and he had two choices. I could refinance and rent it or I could sell it and flip it out. The trouble with flipping is you get slammed with taxes pretty good. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what I would do is I would sell a property that was in my portfolio older where that was an older property that I, I had taken a lot of the depreciation and the newly renovated property i'd add that you know a little feather in my cap to my portfolio and get rid of one of my older places or something or less desirable so a lot of people i don't know that they do that they or they don't haven't had property that long i understand mm-hmm. that but the o- option that went away was the ability to refinance and rent when financing got tight there for a while that option left the table and you're forced to sell well what if you couldn't sell and you use private or hard money, that's expensive money. That's a gamble that I didn't like taking very much. So, and you're in a down market for like 10 years, especially in a lot of parts of the country. We were pretty, you know, stabilized. We weren't going anywhere as far as appreciation. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to play in the distressed debt space while that's going on. 
now I'm actually back into, you know, there's appreciation again. I'm looking at properties. I'm looking at REO. I'm looking at fixing things up. So it's, you need to adjust with the market as well. But I don't like when options are taken off the table. Now you're starting to see options reappear now. You're starting to see uh, home equity loans reappear. You're starting to see uh, more favorable financing start to reappear. So mm -hmm. it's a finance-driven business. And if you're like, oh, I'm not aware of that. I want to do business the way I always did it. Well, guess what? It's changing all around you. And if you're not paying attention, you're basically going to get punched in the head at some point. Yeah. Yep. When you realize my old model's not really working, is it? You know? Yep. No, I love that, especially since you've been around for multiple markets, you know, that, that how you kind of go with the and, and work with the market and see what strategies, you know, you talked about having an arsenal on your tool belt. And I think that's, you know, if you can just understand that and, and have that just in case, you know, maybe it's not buying holding, maybe you just wholesale it because it's not worth your time or, you know, maybe you provide the debt for it for someone else who wants to do the work and, and that what's really opened, you know, my outlook is, you know, I, I hear note investing, I hear, you know, the seminars, but until I like read your book and I was like, oh, so that's how it's done. Oh, okay. So, and now I'm like thinking of different strategies and it gets my, you know, creative uh, process going. So, uh, it's just awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I know I was just super excited. Um, so the debt versus equity. So you say debt, you know, borrowing money, not giving up ownership. And then equity is, you know, giving, you know, shares of a common stock to an investor. Um, and you gave the example of, you know, borrowing private capital where, you know, you did a deal that, you know, you gave away equity, you know, 50 50 on the back end, or you take debt. So is that deal by deal structure? Or is that, you know, something you kind of look at, you know, ahead of time saying, Hey, I'm in a position where I can just give debt as opposed to equity. It's a great question. And there's no one size fits all, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So there the real, the real answer is debt and equity have a place and there's times when both are useful and there's why there's wise ways to you say that 10 times wise ways yeah. to utilize them, yeah. you know? So it's, uh, so for let's take debt for example, the, you know if I'm buying an apartment complex, mm -hmm. well, that traditional financing can really get their mind around that, you know, and they they can buy into that, and they're really, you know, that's easy to go get bank financing for an apartment uh, complex or something. Mm -hmm. So it makes total sense to do that and raise private equity for the down payment or or renovation cost or closing cost. That's a great way to you know finance that type of project. Now, there's a lot of projects that banks don't like to lend on. So then private equity makes more sense. Like, perfect example is we started out in the distress. We started out with delinquent second mortgages and then eventually ended up in delinquent second mortgages with no equity and bankruptcy. Well, who's going to invest in that? A bank is, well, we couldn't make money on it, so how can you? Mm -hmm. That's their attitude. So they're not going to lend on delinquent seconds with partial or no equity. Whereas they will lend on first mortgages with equity, for example. They would give us debt financing for that. Now, there might be strings attached where they want appraisals or, or something like that. But my point is there's times when debt makes sense and there's times when debt doesn't make as much sense. But debt is paid ahead of equity. And it's something that you need to be aware of. Um, and a lot of times equity investors don't like when a particular fund or a particular entity is taking on a lot of debt. Um, mm -hmm. because they know debt gets paid ahead of them. Right. But, um, but there's also advantages where I, I give an example in the book where I was actually, um, uh, going to be partners with my cousin and, um, and he's a great guy. And we were going to be at one point, do I become 50, 50 partners in this project or do we, do I just borrow the money from you? And most of the time with smaller real estate rehab projects, money capital is only worth points and by that, I mean, it's only worth the interest you pay for it. It's not necessarily worth half the deal or something, especially if you found the deal, you're renovating the deal. They, they're really not entitled to that unless they're doing a lot of other activity and you formed an entity and you have roles and responsibilities well-defined and everybody's paid for the roles and responsibilities or their ownership is proportionately uh, divided based on the value they bring to the organization. Most of these structures from the small-time real estate investor are not set up like that. So, um, okay. especially in the beginning, right? They're all like, "Hey, we're all friends. The three guys get <laughs> together. Um, you know, let's go. You know, or you'll see it. I had uh, four friends that bought a vacation home, 
poor couples. <laughs> well, that's that's like a disaster waiting to happen because somebody's going to get divorced. Somebody's going to pass away. Somebody's going to, you know, it's just going to be who gets what weekend. You know, it's yeah. you're just asking for trouble with that kind of thing. <laughs> well, speaking on partnerships, I think chap- chapter nine was probably one of my favorite when you're talking about your case study on that uh, mobile home park in uh, Michigan. Um, and I was hooked to that story, just paragraph by paragraph. I'm like, wow, this thing sounds amazing. And that last paragraph hit me like a rock. Um, so I'll paint the picture for the audience. So 664 units, cash flow of 591,252, purchase price at 20.5 million. You need 4.5 million to close. So you go to your investors and you need a minimum investment of 250K each. So that, you know, equity deal. So you're giving away 80% of the ownership to investors who invest in shares of the LLC that owns the property. You and your partners are the managing entity and retain 20% for putting the deal together and running it. So you have some creative goals, you know, bring the cash flow up to 1.1 million uh, by year three, you know, raise value by increasing rents, decreasing vacancy, expanding the park to additional 60 spots, add pet late fees, better insurance rate. And here I am, I'm like, oh, Dave's going to make so much money off this, you know, cash out year five, you're returning 60 to hundred percent initial capital. And then you talk about creating additional profit centers, you know, going vertical. Um, but that last paragraph, oh, and it's, and you explain how it just fell apart, you know, costing you a quarter of a million dollars, years of your time, damaged reputation, friends, colleagues, lost money. But the most important part, I think, you know, is that reflection process that you have. Otherwise, you still wouldn't be around. And you said, not every deal can be a home run, but I learned pretty quickly that it's important to understand why and learn from it. You didn't run and hide. You chose to be upfront and transparent. So what went wrong and what can you teach the listeners about your reflection process? And I'm sorry <laughs> if that stings for you. So no, 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 not yeah. at all. I mean, failures are probably more important to talk about than successes, right? I mean, yeah. so, well, first of all, I do want to state this. I was not a managing partner. I actually worked for the company and I was in their investor relations department and I was raising capital, but I was also a passive investor and put money together. I actually formed my own entity to go raise capital to invest in this entity. So I was so involved and so close to it that I believed in it that much that I went out and formed an entity to be an invest, to be one of the uh, passive investors in the entity. But I wasn't, um, a managing partner, although I kind of headed up a pretty large investment group and would actually travel out there, go to the parks, go to all their meetings, went to closings. So I became very, um, it was kind of vetting the deal all the way through. The deal was phenomenal. So yeah, I mean, on paper, this was a phenomenal deal. The numbers worked. Everything was great as far as that went. And Really what it amounted to was that there was three partners and they were doing this project, the mobile home parks, the storage centers, the goal of, they had a purpose that was bigger than them and they were building a Christian academy back in New Jersey. And so it wasn't just about that, but the one partner was like a, like almost like a home inspector type guy and he was a construction guy. So when they were renovating the school back home, the two guys cut him out of the renovation project and they brought in somebody else to renovate the school. Well, that guy got all upset because the other two guys were making money off the parks. They were making money, you know, through their salaries and things, you know, equity. And his thing was, well, I wanted to make money on this construction project of the school and you cut me out of that. So he basically decided, well, I'm going to, I'm going to destroy this project. And that's basically what happened. It was over ego. So you had a perfectly viable project mm-hmm. where everything, the numbers worked, the cash flow worked, the financing worked, the, the properties were great, the management team was great. I know, it's hard to fathom. Uh, but basically, it was these two guys against the one guy and getting in this dispute, and it was really over ego, mm-hmm. uh, of them cutting out the one guy. and You know, it's really knowing who your partners are and how, you know, that can actually destroy... Uh, the business and and then they didn't address it properly. They didn't handle it properly. They didn't buy them out properly or whatever. If they wanted to, there's I guess there's better ways to handle those types of situations. I think. Um, but would I have, you know, looking back, even in these types of scenarios where, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, 
you know, I went out and hired attorneys trying to protect investor capital, doing all kinds of things, staying transparent. And this went on for several years. But the irony there is, would I have changed anything or done it differently? And I don't think I would have. I think I would have still done that project. You know, if I saw a project like that today, um, sure, I might have done more due diligence on the partners or, um, mm-hmm. well, the one lesson was I didn't have control. Okay. If I had, if, so if I, a project that size that I'm not committed to, that I'm putting in that much capital, I need some type of control myself, you know. And yeah. I think that's that was the missing link. I didn't have control over the project uh, where I could dictate or help to you know determine the outcome of you know any project can go south though i was I was also involved in another project that was a land development deal that probably went on for ten years and it was a great project the The team was impeccable um, thirty year track record these guys, but the market killed them. So you couldn't get financing to finish the project unless you were 60% rented or sold. Well, there was no financing at, at 08. It just dried up. The project was phenomenal. You yep. know, everything worked out. You know, everything was all teed up. And then it, the, the house of cards just came tumbling down due to the market. Mm-hmm. had nothing to do with the team or the project itself. So that's that's investing. I mean, that can happen. I, I mean, you can't... Um, well, the the best thing is to not have all your eggs in one basket and to, you know, be diversified into multiple things. And, uh, you know, I'm still here. There's no question about it. It it was that one was, you know, sort of a blip on the on the radar. Uh, but if that same project came across my desk today, I could see me going, no, nope, that's a viable, viable project. That's a great team. It's a great uh, investment group. There's no reason to not invest in that. And mm-hmm. it was really a function of you couldn't really. You know, could you predict that the commercial real estate market was going to tank um, quickly after the residential did? You know, yeah. Now I'm I'm building those relationships, and when you partner with other people on deals, is is there some type of process you like to go through? You know, you know, we have to have a solid relationship for you know six months, twelve months. I've got to see your track record. You see mine. See if we have a fit. Is that kind of well? What I do today is probably similar to that, but it's a little bit of cheating, so to speak not cheating, uh, expediting it, right? Yeah. So I run an investment group today of high net worth investors that I put together. It's called uh, Strategic Investor Alliance, and it's an invite-only group. And you might go, well, why did you create this group? I did it for two reasons. One was selfish interest, and I'll get to that in a minute. And then one was to add value to my high net worth investors that invest with me. So how could I give them additional value? Mm-hmm. And what I noticed when I did financial planning, I used to sell insurance, you know, back when I was selling real estate, I would sell insurance too. And I saw where family offices would actually, you know, they're typically 200 million and up. They had their own investment committee. They had their own uh, board of advisors, that type of thing. Whereas the smaller millionaire under 25 million, for example, they're all fragmented and they're not on the same page where like my wife's not in touch with my accountant or my insurance agent or my broker or my, you get the idea. It's all fragmented. So what I decided to do was now I'm going to form a group and the group will act like Yelp for investment and for advisors of alternative investments. So it's kind of like a group of, uh, it's almost like a mini mutual fund of alternative investments and it's invite only. And it's high net worth investors. So I, I initially started the group with a self-directed IRA custodian buddy of mine, me, and a, a securities attorney, and an accountant, and a financial planner. And we brought all our networks together, and we started bringing in different investment vehicles. Now, one of the reasons I did that for the selfish reason that I was talking about is, for example, my self-directed retirement account or qualified plans can invest in PPR because I'm a principal. So I'm always looking for alternative investments myself. But what better way to vet them than to have the group do it? So one way is I have this group do it. too, And it's also a great way, like say you wanted to invest in my fund and you said, Dave, I'd like to talk to people that are already in your fund. Well, it's a private offering. I can't really give out names and phone numbers. And what if you were an investor and some bozos calling you up and you're like, who's this? Who gave out my number? You know. Yeah. But I can invite you to a meeting where we all attend you know, I'll tell you what, I'll invite you to one of our meetings where we and explain what the meeting's about. And there's no selling, no pitching, just information. Awesome. So yeah. what's cool about that is it does a couple of things. And 
you can come and network with other investors that are in my fund, but you can also diversify your portfolio because even when I look at some of my larger investors who have significant resources tied up with my company, it might not be prudent for them to keep giving me more and more capital. It might make more sense for them to invest in some other channels just for their own safety, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and I'm the same way, right? So it's a different approach, right? But I think people really appreciate what I've put together and, um, you know, it's a, it's a great way to vet other investments. Now, I do take it a step further today. I actually have a, co a couple resources that I use to vet different investment vehicles. So some investment vehicles, you know, PPR is kind of a little bit of a fund of funds. So if there's an investment vehicle that's, that matches our core values and our type of business, you know, say it's some other type of vertical, I don't know, say it's tax liens or commercial notes or something like that, that's kind of in our wheelhouse as a company. Well, we could bet that further. Does the company want to invest in some of that? Or mm -hmm. do I want to refer somebody to some of these investment vehicles? So I want to do a little bit of extra vetting on, you know, whoever that is, for example. But there are some of the ways that I do it. And there's actually companies out there that will vet for you uh, for a fee if you wanted to expedite it or, or speed things up. Awesome. I, I love how you created that, though, you know. I, I feel like you get to a certain point in investing where you come, you know, to this point of like a financial advisor, you know, just just by second chance, just you well, know, understand not, investments. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. No, but, well, the, the good part about accredited investors—they're all big boys and girls, right? They—they're mm -hmm. well aware that the SEC doesn't—I don't want to say doesn't care about them. They do, mm -hmm. but when you're an accredited investor, high net worth person, the SEC is not really there to protect you. They figure you're a big boy or girl. You're responsible for yourself. You should vet your own projects, which they're correct. You should. Mm -hmm. But I think if you're, uh, you know, diversified enough, um, you know, you can uh, spread the risk around. And the beauty about the Internet today is the word of mouth thing, the Yelp factor, I call it, where, you know, if you're going to a restaurant, well, why go somewhere where there's bad food or bad service? There's no there's no reason to do that anymore. You know, there's no yeah. reason to settle today. So, yeah, especially with the online forums. I, I love, you know. Looking up, you know, a speaker, and you could tell right there that there's forums of, hey, they pitch you for two hours. And I'm like, oh, well, that saved me some time. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I just have a few last questions. Um, sure. So what would you do differently today as a real estate investor? Um, and what is your big, hairy, audacious goal today? Oh, wow. <laughs> so what would I do different? Um, probably the biggest thing is, Thinking bigger sooner is is one of them. And it, an easy example of that was there was a time when I was this Remax agent and, you know, I had these multiple verticals, for example, and I was selling about 75 houses a year to real estate investors. And one of the things I looked back at was like, I didn't really believe in hard money. I was like, hard money is expensive. I don't know why people utilize that. Right. So one day I'm at lunch with a buddy of mine and he had used hard money from some, you know, a person we both know for 30, his first 39 deals. So I'm out to lunch with him. I'm like, dude, what would possess you to use hard money for your first 39 deals? And he goes, well, you don't understand. It got easier over time. My rate, he reduced my rates over time. It just became easy. And I just kept doing it. And it was, it was convenient. He goes, but the real reason was I was making money on the draw. And I go, making money on the draw. What does that mean? And he goes, well, if the next phase of the project was 10 grand and me and my crack, you know, Cracker Jack crew got it done for six grand, I was able to put four grand in my pocket tax free. And when I went to refinance, the bank saw the 10 grand and they, the takeout financing was not reduced. It was at the full amount of the original hard money loan. And I was like, that's fascinating. And I'm like, <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? I never knew people made money on the draw. And I discounted hard money all those years, for example. So go back to my story, right? I'm selling 75 houses a year to all these other real estate investors. I had the contractors. I had the money. I had the deals. And I gave all the deals away for, for commission. Yep. When in reality, I could have kept all the deals. And today I have a buddy out of Memphis who owns 1,500 houses, right? And I look at him, I'm like, how the heck did he get to 1,500 houses? I, I don't know that I would, what made him do that. He's probably, <laughs> you know, why are you talking about me like this? No, but 
which is crazy. Today, I'd rather have 1,500 loans, right? We have over 7,000 mortgages, right? So, but the the interesting thing was, okay, that's how he did it because he he didn't give it all away. I gave it all away, and I'm looking back, going, yeah, I'm worried about the title. I'm worried about the mortgage business. I'm worried about the property management. Why well, could I had all that? Mm-hmm. And I could have kept them all, and I could have renovated them all, and I could have used commercial financing and a commercial blanket, and I could have, I could have used hard money, especially if I could have made money on the draw, and I could have, you know, I was short-sighted. I was like, basically, stepping over dollars to pick up, you know, pennies, so to speak. Yeah. When I was just focused in my commission world, you know, I wasn't, I was missing the big picture. You know, yeah. the rehabbers make it thirty or fifty grand on the deal. And I'm making two like and I but but it's one thing to say, you know, I had all the pieces there. I had all the tool, I had all the tools in the toolbox. I wasn't taking them out of the toolbox. I wasn't thinking big enough. And I guess sometimes sometimes we're afraid to think big or afraid of success or something. You know, I, I yeah. guess maybe that was part of it. I don't know. Oh, so that's that, that's the one piece. So this what was the second part of the question you said? Your big uh, uh, you uh, uh, B yeah. hag, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, today our our B hag is to, you know, definitely a bigger purpose today. Uh, you know, we're very successful. Uh, we're trying to get to a billion dollars under management in less than ten years, and I think we're going to do it. Um, now, that's not just the main reason. The main reason is that we're able to help other people to share, build, and preserve their wealth, and really, that's what it's about. And I think. You know, when I think of all the stakeholders that we come in t- contact with, whether it's our fund investors, you know, we want to make them a nice return for their retirements because people can't make nice yields in their retirements. And we're a different way to do that without all the middlemen, without all the fees, yep. easy to invest 24 hours a day on your cell phone, right? We want to help the banks get toxic assets off their books, help them help their balance sheet. We want to help the homeowners stay in their homes, rework their loans, um, keep their houses. You know, when you, you know, we had just recently moved to a new location, but in our old uh, facilities, you would walk in the office and there were a picture of homes all over the office. And they, they were homes that we saved people's houses. So it was very rewarding to walk in there and go, wow, look at all the hundreds of homes we saved. So that's very, that's very powerful to help people, you know, leave them in a better financial position, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I was raised by a single mom with six kids, right? I get that. You can, you know, most people in the U.S. today are probably 60 days away from bankruptcy or something. Uh, if you think about it, if you cut the paycheck off. So um, not a lot of savings in most the average American's bank account, you know, for most mm-hmm. people. So you understand that. But I, I like the fact that we're able to leave people in better positions. And even note buyers, even even though they might not be an accredited investor yet, they might be on their path or journey to becoming one. And if you can help them by investing in, in notes and mortgages, it's just another vehicle. I'm not saying it's better than any other vehicle. I, I never mm-hmm. wanted to do that. I believe that there's advantages and disadvantages to all investment vehicles. And, you know, I'll probably always own some real estate. Um, but I do like the note piece. Um, it's very mm-hmm. passive. It's got its, it's got its own group of advantages. And, um, you know, it's definitely a place in my portfolio to have uh, some lending going on at all times, so definitely, yeah, awesome. And uh, leave you the last thought. That um, philosophy on page one ninety to one ninety one was absolutely amazing. I don't know if it like hit a chord with me, like, it, but it just summed up the book perfectly. Um, you know, I, I always ask, like I said before, you know, successful entrepreneurs, you know, what's your best advice? And and like you said, it's a hard question to answer, but those two pages really hit the nail on the head. And um, it's just phenomenal. And there's so much stuff that's in that book that, you know, you can't even cover in an hour. But, <laughs> you know, it's I just want to thank you so much, you know, for being on the show and, you know, for listeners out there, you know, like I said, we only touched on small stuff. So, uh, you know, the book just came out. So make sure yeah. you get your copy today. And that cover is amazing. We're talking about. So you worked on that with your son, <laughs> you were saying? No, actually, uh, the cover came through Bigger Pockets uh, okay. group that helped me publish this. But, uh, yeah, if you go to biggerpockets.com, forward slash note investing not to be salesy but uh there is some uh pretty good bonuses on there if if you order the book through bigger pockets so definitely uh, you get some uh, extra perks right 
Yep, there you go. And that concludes our first episode with author Dave Van Horn on real estate note investing. Make sure you pick up your copy today at biggerpockets.com backslash note investing. My key takeaway from today's episode was Dave's reflection process as he grew as an investor. He'd always ask himself if he was stepping over dollars to pick up dimes. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page, The Book Club Interview, to see what books are reading and what authors will have on the show next. That's it for today. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.